Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast, a podcast where we connect people and communities to science and research so we can join forces to catalyze sustainable global change. In this episode, we are celebrating International Women's Day. We hope you've had a chance to listen to our first International Women's Day episode. It was a cracker, so do tune in for that. This year's theme, as a reminder, is Embrace Equity, and it calls for the world to move beyond thinking about equality to thinking about equity. The campaign is stating that equal opportunities are no longer enough, and they can, in fact, be exclusionary rather than inclusive. Today, we will be discussing the differences between the term equity and equality and why it is important to understand, acknowledge and value this. So the definitions of the terms provided by the International Women's Day campaign are that equality gives everyone the same resource. It does not take into consideration that everyone is different, their circumstances are different and they have different needs. Equity does recognize that fact and allocates the exact resources and opportunities needed to reach an equal outcome. So it's much more about justice and outcome. To explore what this means in reality, we have two guests with us who will be speaking about the work they do to promote equity. We have the honor of having Dr. Renu Kosla, who is the director of the Center for Urban and Regional Excellence, or CUER. Her work is aimed at unthinking and reimagining slum and inclusive urban development and nudging community-led initiatives that also build resilience. She works to strengthen local capacities for participation and on a previous International Women's Day, won an award from the Government of India for her work in sanitation and promoting equality. We also have the pleasure of Dr. Lillian Otiso, who is the Executive Director at LBCT Health in Kenya. She is a health systems researcher and is involved in several research and community health programs across several fields to name but a few, HIV, sexual and reproductive health, maternal and child health, and gender-based violence. Today, Lillian will be speaking to us about her PhD research with the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, where she is studying accountability for universal health coverage among pregnant adolescents. Without further ado, Lillian, welcome to the podcast. Tell us what International Women's Day means for you and what you think about the theme of moving further from equality to equity. Hi, Kim, and thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to International Women's Day and even having this conversation. I think International Women's Day is really special for women. And it's important to recognize women and the role that we play and how it's like a critical population or group to consider, given that we are half the world and over the years we've always got the short end of the stick. So it's nice that we have a day to celebrate that and recognize the value of women and focus something important around the issues of women. I love the theme, the aspects of just embracing equity and going beyond just looking at equality itself. From my experience, and we've seen this over the years, when you provide equality, it means everything is the same for everyone. So if it's going to school, you all have the same opportunities. But the reality about where we come from, and I'm speaking to you from Nairobi in Kenya, so African country, in a very patriarchal society where things really are focused on the boy child and what he can get. When resources have to be shared, the boys get more of those resources. When we talk about equality and say everybody should go to school, it's said on paper. In practice, it's not. So the Embracing equity here means that now we look at families and accept that their realities are complex. So how do we help them 
to meet the needs of the child, the girl child that they've decided maybe not to allow to go to school because of resources or something else. I've seen this a lot in my work, but I, th I think I love it. And it's a really exciting theme and quite relevant at this time when we are all looking at this aspect from equity in terms of women or other people who are marginalized for different reasons. Thanks very much. And I really like that you brought in the girl child versus boy child there and also what is on paper versus reality. We see a lot of policies and documentation where equality is written into, but in reality, the norms in the places where we live have some sort of control of that. So Renu, welcome to the podcast. Same question to you. Tell us what you think of the theme and what International Women's Day means for you. Thanks, Kim. What um, I heard really echoes what happens in India. So I guess this is the common story for women. I think what Women's Day does is that it nudges us to think about women. We think development, we think communities, but we often forget the realities of the way women are socialized into, um, into believing they don't have agency, that they are disempowered. We don't listen to the complexities. And, you know, we had this very interesting study recently that we did with the Institute of Development Studies in India. We were looking at access to sanitation in low-income slum and informal communities, which the toilet that the women have access to is a shared community toilet at the end of the settlement. It was an eye-opener for an organization like us that's been working for 20 years in slums of different cities in India. We found that women had embodied this whole idea of shame and the male gaze prevented them from even going to the toilet. They want to avoid being seen. They could not purchase a sanitary pad unless it was a man who helped them go out and buy the sanitary pads. I think that was very, very startling for us. And I think that's when we realized that there is an intersectionality to the development, the city development and the processes of development that we talk of and the processes of socialization that embed uh, these feelings of unagency. That's when we felt that our work needs to combine the two together and to nuance it, to granularize it, and to then look at solutions from the perspective of a woman. And that's what women, uh, Women's Day means to us. Solutions from a women's perspective, I think that's exactly what we're looking at today. I also noticed that you use the word nudge quite a lot. Uh, the word nudge, what does that mean for you here? With experience, we began to realize that we cannot make wholesale changes. And we need to incrementally make change happen. And therefore, we believe that we can nudge slowly and maybe reach a critical point when we would have a transformative change happen. That's why nudge is the word that I like to use because I know that working with governments, with city governments, local governments, it is very hard to change the kind of legacies and practices and socialize mindsets because it's, it's a man-designed world. Therefore, a change will have to be brought in slowly, incrementally, gradually. That's nudge. 
Thank you very much for that. Lillian, I suspect this aligns with your thinking as well. Do you want to tell us a bit about your work and some of the similarities? Yeah, and, and thanks, Renu, for bringing in Nudge. I think it's a good point for us to think about. The truth is policy change and any major changes are slow and sometimes painful. And it's incremental changes, not just overnight. In terms of our work, the organization I work for, LVCT Health, has been doing a lot of work on HIV, GBV, sexual reproductive health across the country. We've always focused on vulnerable and marginalized groups, including and especially adolescent girls and young women. We've seen that uh, in terms of what we do is we go find them within the communities, come up with programs where we are working with the young people or as peers and others to do the mobilization and working with communities to identify who is in need, who needs to be found, linking them to the facility or providing services at the community. The latest work I'm involved in, um, in my PhD, is looking at teenage mothers and pregnant adolescents. The basis of this was, in our earlier work, we found that we have a lot of teenage pregnancies. Actually, it's a crisis in Kenya at the moment. Every time we have the national exams, the media goes and covers all these girls who are pregnant, doing their exams in the hospital bed when they've given birth and things like that. And we have been saying the same thing over the last 20 years about how to tackle teenage pregnancy. And that message has been consistent in terms of this is bad behavior. We need to change the behavior of these girls and tell them to abstain from sex. That is the only message. We've said that over all these years, but what are we actually doing about it that is different? Are we listening to these girls and seeing why they got pregnant and what happens to them after that, after they give birth? Unfortunately, the reality is very many of them drop out of school and that becomes the vicious cycle of They'll get the children, they have to take care of them because there's no one to take care of the child. So she doesn't go back to school and will remain um, in this state of poverty or struggling in the community. The work right now is to identify, first of all, when they're pregnant, what are the perceptions in the community? How do they get access to services that are of the right quality and meet the needs of adolescents, which are different from the needs of maybe an older woman? Are they being taken care of in terms of their psychological needs, their medical needs in the community? Who's paying for this? Are they able to access these services? And then what happens after they deliver? Are they able to go back to school? What programs exist? What is the community doing about them? And how are we preventing future pregnancies among these girls? So in, in that context, and when we look at the whole aspect of International Women's Day, that's where the equity comes in and that the services are not exactly like anybody else, when they go into facilities and the stories we hear are very depressing, how they're abused, how they're beaten and told things like, widen your legs the way you widen them when you got pregnant, you know, things like that. And it's very crude and all. So how do we get the message from them? And we worked with them as co-researchers or people who have gone through teenage pregnancy to actually do the data collection and mobilization through that, they've identified the real need. And they were surprised how finding out this information and how one person's story is the same as somebody else's story. The goal now is that we're going to work with them to be able to be the ones who speak to the decision makers. And then the decision makers can work out solutions that work for them, both in terms of if they do get pregnant, they get quality services, but also how do we prevent um, unwanted teenage pregnancies, which is really a big problem, and do something different. I'm really tired of doing the same thing over and over. 
And I'm sure that's also something that Renu is seeing in India. Absolutely. We do have a lot of teenage pregnancies, but they're all married girls. They're all young girls who've been married off before they have attained puberty. Again, going back to the study that I was talking to you, we were really surprised to learn that many of them had learned about how to manage menarche only from their mothers-in-law. So it was a proxy indicator for us to find out that girls were getting married before they had completed their 16 years or they had started their puberty. Uh, but, you know, I was also connecting to what you were saying, um, Lillian, about the access to health services. But, you know, our work is around access to uh, basic services, water and sanitation. And we did another piece of work where we looked at pregnant women. Water collection storage is a responsibility of women. And when they are pregnant, one of the advice that comes from the doctors, you being a health uh, practitioner, you'd be able to tell us because the advice is to not carry weights. Here these women are carrying these 20 liter buckets and several of them during the day, uh, taking them into these informal homes, storing water. And that's their responsibility. It is interesting. We were also struggling to understand what women do when they have these little babies and water filling. You need to fill water. So who do you leave your baby with? Do you carry your baby, little baby along with you? And what are the complications that something like this can lead to uh, as you grow older? I'm just curious as to what really would happen to uh, women who are carrying weights when they are pregnant. That's a good question. The issue is that pregnancy itself already gives backache because you're carrying a weight that is not normal for your body. So it's already a big strain on the body. So we do expect that people shouldn't do very hard work, and especially in the third trimester as they're about to deliver. So that's, those are some of the things we need to address. Very interestingly, in our study for the teenage mothers, for when their parents accepted that they were pregnant, especially their mothers, those are some of the tasks they were quick to help their daughters with. Because they say, don't wash clothes, don't bend, don't go carrying water, we will do that for you. They already recognize that is a problem. And it's something that I think it's interesting, you've brought it up. It's never been thought about that this woman is married, she's the caregiver, she has other children, but she's still expected to continue doing the work. So there have to be ways and solutions where things like water are available near the home or even within the home so they don't have to do heavy work and heavy weight lifting. It becomes a lot worse for those who've had a cesarean section. They need time to heal. Otherwise, the wound will tear and just never heal. And the wound will become a chronic issue, may get infected. And they will also have chronic backache, which affects the rest of their lives and the work that they do. So, so we come from a perspective where we believe that we need to get toilets and taps at home for women. In informal settlements, all they are offered is a set of shared services. A lot of this comes from the fact that there is this whole land occupancy issue, which is illegal because they are occupying uh, land informally. There are legal restraints to delivering services at home. At Cure, all our uh, solutions are co-created or designed to enable poor families to build toilets at home, which would then provide them with a kind of an what you say, equitable solution uh, to what is there in the rest of the city. 
we feel builds a, a healthier environment for uh, for the women who are living over there. One of the more interesting things that we do is we we've started seminizing data. We believe in community data. We believe that community has the wisdom, the knowledge, the wiseness, and can share their information, which is then used for planning. But feminizing this data means trying to bring out the gender aspects of uh, how men and women are accessing services and how there is inequality, even though there is equality in the way uh, services delivered to them. It sounds like what you're doing is a lot of co-production. So Lillian, the same question to you, 20 years, I can almost hear the frustration in your voice of, you know, the same thing's been coming out. Is it changing? Is, is now the time really to uh, kind of raise the agenda? How is the environment changing in terms of receiving a feminized data set for action? The 20 years, in my view, are getting even worse. I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> and we need to have data. And yes, feminized data. And I like that really disaggregated. So we have the gender and we have the age and showing the difference. One thing that we learned also from one of the projects we're doing called Arise is there's no data on informal urban settlements that is separate. We have Nairobi, which is a big cosmopolitan city, and it has very rich, it has very poor people. But the data that is collected is all Nairobi. So if you're finding out about disease and diarrheal diseases, it's Nairobi-wide. It's not going to tell you that actually most of these diseases are happening in these informal settlements. It gets even worse within the informal settlements where we all assumed that everyone is the same because they're poor and they live in these slums, that uh, their issues are the same. But we were able to go in and find that actually things are quite different depending on people. Some people have some purchasing power, others have nothing. They can't afford anything. They're really, really poor. The data has to be disaggregated to that level where you're able to identify this person is, has been left behind. When we presented that data to community members and community leaders, they were shocked. There was a village elder who said, I'm embarrassed that I have lived here for 20 years and I did not know that this was happening in my community. We have to really embrace that aspect where the data is generated from the most basic level and the community helps to generate it because they know their challenges and what they're going through and that it can be able to feed up. It shouldn't just be data that's collected and thrown away or not used. It has to be used, otherwise it's pointless to collect it and then disaggregated by gender, by age, and by that socioeconomic status to address that. I feel like that will be a, a system changer, especially if it's led by government and they take it in, then it would work really well. Feminizing data to have systems in place for women that are designed by women. It's great. It's really reassuring to hear that that data is being presented back to communities and that kind of raising an awareness of what's happening is that key first step. So Renu, within this podcast, we're curious about the ways you disseminate information. So perhaps you could talk a bit about how you communicate your findings. We have over the years spatialized the data that we have been generating from slum and low-income informal settlements. We have realized that when you spatialize information, it actually identifies and points to the gaps in services to a city manager, to a city decision maker, in terms of 
Where are the settlements where enough sufficient services have not been delivered? We call our tool the ErbGov, which is urban governance. It's a specialized uh, data decision-making platform, uh, which uses GIS. And uh, it collects the information on city infrastructure and then overlays it with data that comes from the community and uh, which is generated from people's interactions. It's got built-in algorithms, which are then used by the city to actually take decisions which are not subjective. They're very objective decisions which, which will allow you, which will inform the city officials uh, that this is where the service is missing or this is where you have an excess of services and this is how you need to rationalize. This is about bringing equity. One of the aspects of this system is that it has what is called SENT, which is a citizen engagement tool. It's a platform. It's a space that has been created where the community data can go up to the city. Because our experience has shown that while we collect a lot of information from the city, as Lillian has pointed out, the information doesn't actually travel up to the authorities. And therefore, it stays with the community, uh, collected by the community, stays with them. And therefore, there are no pathways that connect it to the actual city planner. That's the change that we wanted to bring about by using smart tools, which is what cities understand. The other problem with our data is that if we granularize it too much, a city is unable to use it. While the granularity is required at the grassroots level where we are designing solutions and where we are localizing solutions, we are contextualizing them because when you take it up to a city, it really needs to bring the data together. So I think what at this point of time Cure is trying to do is to understand how cities take decisions and to then try and curate mechanisms by which the city receives the kind of information that they are able to use. Sounds amazing. Very impressive. And, and I think our listeners will be very interested in that tool. I am so sad we've run out of time. I think I could have sat here for a whole hour. Lillian, could you take us home with what's the one piece of advice you would give to people from 20 years experience of working to try to make change, what piece of advice would you give others who are entering the field? Um, it's a process. It takes time. You do get some gains and you should celebrate those. So don't feel frustrated. And it's small steps and nudging and knowing who to reach out to. Most importantly, listening to the voice of the community and those that we want to work with. I think for me, that's the most critical part. Thank you very much. Renu, last piece of advice, please. Collaborate. I think we need to collaborate with women because women's voices matter. And we need to shift from our legacy practices of upgrading, which is giving lower quality of services, to integration, where we want to integrate and to plug them and to on-grid them into the city systems. So collaborate. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Collaborate. And be resilient as well, I think, from what Lillian was saying there. So thank you both. This has been a wonderful space to explore your work. And I think there's a lot of take-home messages and learning there for our listeners. As always, thank you to our listeners. Please do like, rate, share, and subscribe so we can continue to bring voices like we have today to improve community engagement in all the work we do. Until next time, bye for now.